This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting and a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. I must first provide you with this warning. This episode contains details of the murders of young children, the murder of a pregnant woman, and of course, the death of the child she was pregnant with. And these topics may be difficult and triggering for some listeners. If this is the case, then you may want to pass on this one. This story may or may not contain a great deal of hatred and vitriol aimed at the criminal defendant, so my apologies in advance if I go off the rails on this asshole. Listener discretion is strongly advised. My daddy is a hero. He helps me grow up strong. He helps me snuggle, too. He reads me books. He ties my shoes. You're a hero through and through. My daddy, daddy, I love you. Two months after Bella Watts was recorded singing the song she made up about her hero, her daddy, he would creep into her bedroom and into her sister Celeste's bedroom, put pillows over their faces, and smother the life out of them. He snuggled with them. He read them books. He tied their shoes. And then this piece of sh murdered them as they slept. Their hero, right? Their mother, Shanann, constantly gushed over her family, her children, her husband, the anticipation of the arrival of their third child as she was in her second trimester of pregnancy with a boy that would have been named Nico. Her husband was the best. Their love story was akin to a fairy tale romance. The pictures certainly do paint that portrait. The world knows now that below the surface, this wasn't the case. We know how Shanann's fairy tale comes to an end. So, how did this all happen? Frederick, Colorado is the backdrop of our story, located in the northern part of Colorado, along the front range of the Rockies, its beginnings rooted in coal mining. Shanann had been out of town on a business trip in Arizona in the days prior to Monday, August 13, 2018. 
She was captured on a neighbor's video surveillance arriving home at 1.48 a.m. She was dropped off at home by her friend. That was the last time Shanann was ever seen alive. At 1.40 p.m. that same day of August 13th, the Frederick Police Department was contacted by the same friend who had dropped Shanann off 12 hours earlier. The friend was concerned that she had not been able to get in touch with Shanann. She wasn't answering any of her calls or text messages, and she also missed a 10 a.m. doctor's appointment. Police arrived at the Watts family home, and they were granted permission to come inside by the only person home at the time. And what police didn't know yet, the only person left alive out of the entire family. Looking around, they quickly determined that she had made it back from her business trip as her suitcase was sitting at the base of the stairs and there were a pair of women's shoes by the front door. Police noted that her purse was on the kitchen counter with her wallet and medication still inside and her cell phone was wedged in between the cushions on the sofa. The sole occupant of the home insisted, repeatedly, that Shanann had left, taking the girls with her. Earlier that morning at 5.27 a.m., this man was seen backing his truck into the garage of the family home. When questioned about this later on, he told police that he was loading tools for work and left for a job site located in Hudson, Colorado. He claimed when he left, Shanann and the girls were in bed. And he also said that she mentioned she was going over to a friend's house later that day and would be taking the girls with her, though he did not know which friend she was going to visit. Suspicions were raised almost immediately when police saw Shanann, who was 34 years old, Bella, who was four, and Celeste, who was three, were gone, but Shanann's important personal effects that she would have certainly brought with her were still in the house. Her purse, wallet, and phone. They did not observe any signs of foul play or any indication a fight of any kind or a struggle took place. By 7 a.m. the following day, August 14th, when Shanann, Bella, and Celeste had not returned home or turned up anywhere for that matter, Alerts were issued for all three of them. The Frederick police made a request to the FBI and the CBI for assistance in searching for mom and her girls. The CBI issued a missing endangered alert for all three. By that Tuesday afternoon, the media began descending upon the Watts home. Pleas were made for the three missing family members to return home. That their being missing was, quote, earth-shattering he said. I need to see everybody, he said. This house is not complete without them, he said. I read a very interesting article on traproot.com about the nonverbal indicators in those televised interviews prior to the truth being known as to what happened to Shanann and the girls. It's kind of fascinating because I think almost all of us who saw those interviews picked up on it in the moment when we first saw his face on TV that he wasn't right. We all felt it. Whether we are experts at reading nonverbal cues or not, most of us got a feeling 
And sometimes it's hard to put into words what exactly it was that was so off about him that made us grow our suspicions. We can't put our finger on it. It's just the whole interaction gave us bad vibes when we watched these interviews on the news as the search was going on. These were some of the red flags that we noticed when we were looking at a cold-blooded murderer, a child killer, a baby killer. During the interview that the killer gave to television news crews, it's apparent that his mouth becomes dry, evidenced by the fact that he begins to lick his lips, and he does so multiple times. And the mouth becomes dry because of extreme nervousness, and it is something that cannot be controlled, and it cannot be covered up. So an investigator talking to a person of interest might be looking at this licking of the lips or any kind of hard swallowing during an interview as that person having something going on that they're seriously nervous about. And it isn't necessarily the telling of lies because lying can't be proven through body language, but it definitely is a red flag. And it's worth noting whether or not, as the interview progresses, if the person being interviewed is becoming more or less comfortable. Because if an interviewee is signaling discomfort in the beginning, they will typically become less guarded as the interview progresses on. There was a point in this interview that he spelled out the name of his daughter, Celeste. And when he does so, he closed his eyes. This is considered a blocking behavior, something that he doesn't want to look at or see or think about. It can be seen as an indicator that he does know the truth as to the whereabouts of his daughter, and the closing of the eyes is an attempt to block that or not wanting to see it. And after he spelled out her name, he swallowed hard. So, when noticing an interviewee closing their eyes, an investigator may begin to wonder what this person is avoiding seeing. It has been shown that when people recount the stories of something tragic or a traumatic event that they witnessed, the person telling the story often demonstrates the behavior of closing their eyes. When the killer says, quote, Bella is four, Celeste is three, it is noted that his lips are compressed together. They're drawn inward, almost disappearing. And this can be seen as an indicator that he's holding something back, that the interviewee may be withholding information that he does not want to provide. At another point in his interview, he touched the side of his nose. And this action, touching or covering of the nose, can signal that the person being interviewed is not sure of what they are saying and is nervous about how they are coming across. There are nerve endings in the nose, many of them that will tingle when a person is stressed or under pressure. People often touch their nose without even thinking about it or knowing why it's being done. It can be an indicator of a couple of different things. That the person being interviewed is uncertain, their memory isn't clear, or they're trying to cover something up. For a person conducting the interview, it's important to note what words are being spoken any time the hand is brought up to the face. The killer said in his interview that he hopes his wife is somewhere safe. But in a review of the interview, it is clear that the facial expressions are not matching the words that are coming out of his mouth. If a loved one has gone missing, and children as well, and you are hoping that they are safe, 
it is unlikely that you're going to have a pleasant, mildly smiling look on your face, which is the vibe being given off during this portion of his interview. Interviewers need to make note of what facial expressions are saying as they relate to the words being spoken. Is there a match? If not, this may be a signal that the interviewee is hiding something and trying to mask facial expressions. The killer also talked about how much he misses his children with that same pleasant look of ease on his face. And when he said, it's tearing me apart, he closed his eyes again. Several more minutes into the interview, the killer licks his lips some more and he compresses his lips when he states, quote, wherever they are, come home. That's what I want. He placed his arms in front of him and they're not really crossed, but more of a cradled position, which can be read as a defensive move. But in this case, it seems more of a self-comforting type of thing. He shifted his arms a bit and goes back to almost cradling himself. Another minute or so into the interview, he states, quote, I just want them back. And then he follows that with a laugh, which is obviously not a reaction that you would expect from someone who is missing his wife and children. The licking of the lips and the hard swallowing continues which shows even five to six minutes into his interview, he's still very uncomfortable. Closing in on seven minutes while talking about police looking at surveillance cameras in the neighborhood, his lips become pressed together firmly again and continued to lick his lips some more. And finally, towards the end, the killer is asked what he would like to say to his wife and he's about to answer, he closed his eyes again and he began shaking his head no, side to side, when the things he was saying would have called for shaking his head yes instead. And I've heard this before, and I want to say, strangely enough, another Colorado case, Kenya Monier. Her killer gave a television interview, and he was shaking his head yes while he was saying no. And if you aren't familiar with Kenya's case, and since we're in Colorado at the moment, perhaps I will go over her story briefly as well. I believe it's been told on another podcast. I can't think of it at the moment, but I will look it up when we start discussing her case afterwards. Anyway, after I read the body language analysis, I rewatched that seven or eight minute interview which I had only watched a portion of back in August because I really did not want to hear this man's voice. I was already suspicious of him and I couldn't stand looking at his face. And yeah, he was definitely not doing himself any favors by going before the media. It reminded me so much of Lacey Peterson's killer and the laughing. Oh my goodness, dreamers. He's laughing as he's talking about his missing wife and babies. He's laughing. I just can't look or listen to him without burning up inside with rage. So this killer said in this interview, when asked if they had gotten into an argument before he left for work that day, he said that they had an emotional conversation and he'll just leave it at that. And then he laughed some more and said that he just wanted them back. He just wanted them back. <sighs> Whatever. 
By that afternoon, the day after the killer gave this interview, on Wednesday, August 15th, investigators seemed to have knowledge that Shanann, Bella, and Celeste were no longer alive. Not only that, they had an idea of where their bodies were based on the GPS in his truck. This guy is just brilliant, right? So, using a drone to get an overhead view of the oil and gas site, they were able to pinpoint a couple of important pieces of evidence. They found a bed sheet that matched pillowcases and another bed sheet found in the home. What's more, the match to the sheet found in the oil field and the pillowcases had been thrown in the trash. Also, from the drone camera, police spotted what they described as fresh movement of dirt consistent with a clandestine grave near the oil tanks. On the evening of August 15th, the police investigation revealed that the killer was having an extramarital affair with a co-worker named Nicole Kessinger. And this was a fact when questioned early on by police that the killer had initially denied. When confronted with this information that they knew that he was having an affair and he lied about it, he purportedly told investigators that he would reveal the truth once he had a chance to speak to his dad. And then he made a confession of sorts, but it was still a bunch of bullshit. The killer told investigators in a videotaped conversation with his father that when Shanann got back from her business trip, that he told her that he wanted a separation. Following that, he said she got angry and went to the girl's room. And looking on in the baby monitor, he saw Shanann strangling Celeste and that Bella was already blue and sprawled out on her bed, already dead. And this caused him to fly into a rage, at which time he would strangle Shanann to death. He then said he loaded all three of them into the back of his work truck, drove to a work site, and he buried Shanann in a shallow grave, and he placed Bella and Celeste into oil tanks. He submerged those girls in oil dreamers. He did that. Their hero. God, I just hate this guy. So, at 11.30 p.m. on Wednesday, August 15th, the killer was arrested on suspicion of three counts of first-degree murder, unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and three counts of tampering with deceased human bodies. He was held without bond. The veneer of the perfect family, the perfect couple, all that knew them, it was all shattered. I don't know about my dreamers out there listening, but I just don't find anything shocking anymore when it comes to these so-called perfect families. Human beings, even the dad who reads to his girls and ties their shoes, is their hero whom they loved is capable of the greatest acts of depravity. And wiping out one's entire family, his own children, and his own unborn child, 
Have I mentioned how much I hate this man? I can't say it enough. I hate this man. Okay. Let me pull myself together. On Thursday, August 16th, authorities made the sad announcement to the media that Shanann had been found on property owned by the killer's former employer, Anadarko Petroleum. The killer was fired the day that he was arrested. Shanann was buried in a shallow grave at this oil work site, and her girls, Bella and Celeste, were nearby, submerged in those oil drums. On Friday, August 16th, the Weld County coroner positively identified Shanann, Bella, and Celeste. That night, a candlelight vigil was held for them, and a memorial adorned the front of their home. Pictures of the girls and Shanann, stuffed animals and flowers. The entire community came together to remember the three beautiful souls whose lives were brutally taken from them by the hands of the one person who was supposed to have loved them and cherished them. And he was trying to tell the world that it was Shanann that caused all of this grief. The autopsies conducted would reveal the many sad truths about what occurred to Shanann, Bella, and Celeste. What really couldn't be determined was the exact day the victims were killed, particularly the girls. Nobody believed Shanann killed them, and ultimately, the coroner did determine that it was believed the girls were killed sometime between August 12th and August 13th, and as I mentioned, Shanann did not arrive home from her business trip until the early morning hours of the 13th. So the general belief is that they were killed by their father prior to Shanann arriving home, and Shanann was killed last. But he has never openly confessed to killing them and continues to maintain that it was Shanann who did so. The cause of death of all three of them was determined to be asphyxiation. Specifically, Shanann was strangled and Bella and Celeste were smothered. When Shanann was found, she was wearing a purple t-shirt and her bra and underwear. She had abrasions and bruising around her neck and on the left side of her face, and according to the lack of any other significant injuries to her body, it is suggested that she died quite slowly. And she was with child in her second trimester, which brought about the charge of unlawful termination of a pregnancy. Four-year-old Bella's autopsy revealed that she was wearing pink pajamas with hearts and butterflies on them. Her injuries included blunt force trauma to her jaw, as well as lacerations and contusions in her mouth. Her left shoulder was bruised, and she had her own teeth impressions and bite marks on the surface of her tongue, an indication that Bella fought for her life. Three-year-old Celeste was found wearing a pink and black t-shirt, and her report revealed no physical injuries to her body, meaning that she did not put up much of a fight, likely didn't even have a chance. And I'm hoping upon hopes that she never saw or knew what was happening to her. 
I don't know if the same could be said for Bella, who fought back. We can only hope that she didn't know or see either. Because Bella and Celeste were submerged in crude oil, DNA evidence could not be collected from them, though they tried. These babies were in oil for four days. Four days. They had injuries on their bodies that were indicative of being placed in these oil drums, the access shafts of which were only eight inches in diameter. They had cuts and abrasions, and tufts of blonde hair were found at the entrance of one of them. So yeah, this motherfucker did that. Eventually, this killer, the coward that he is, the coward that he's proven himself to be, killing his wife and her helpless little girls while they slept, and her unborn son, then pointing the finger of blame at Shanann. This cowardly bastard, concerned only with his own life, decided to plead guilty on Tuesday, November 6th. And it was apparently something he was really pissed off about because he didn't feel as though he should be made to plead guilty to the killing of the children, insisting that it was Shanann who committed those crimes, not him. But his concern for his own life not ending up on death row, won out in the end. And he pleaded guilty to all the charges. And sometimes, just when you think that things couldn't get worse, this killer's family decided to speak out, defending their son, of course. Just like the in-laws of Lacey Peterson, again. The golden child, right? The son who could do no wrong. These in-laws were just like that. They actually went to the media and said that their daughter-in-law, pregnant and all, was absolutely capable of murdering Bella and Celeste. Yep, they said that. That the relationship between their son and Shanann was, quote, very hard. That you have to get to know her, to be around her. They just put it that way that their son was in an abusive relationship and that their son was isolated from them because of Shanann. It was a very hard relationship with her as far as I'm concerned, said the killer's mother, Cindy. I couldn't do anything right. She was asked if her son was capable of killing their children and she continued to lay blame upon Shanann, stating, I would say she's more capable than my son. I don't see him capable at all. But if something happened that night, and that did happen, God forbid if it did happen, what was the trigger? Why? What happened? I just want to know the truth because he's not the sociopath next door. He's not the kind of person that would do something like that. I have to know why. I have to know. It's important to me. Um, I've got a news flash for you, lady. He is the sociopath next door. And that is the truth. And you are choosing not to believe it because that's the easy way out of this. To blame the one who's dead. The one who cannot speak for herself. 
the one who cannot defend herself. It's much easier than looking into the eyes of your son and having to believe that he is the monster that did all of this. The truth isn't important to this woman. The why isn't important to her. Being able to walk the rest of her days on this earth believing that her son did not snuff the life out of her two beautiful granddaughters by his own hand is what's important to her. I feel terribly for this entire family. I know that they lost their grandchildren. But when they openly speak disparagingly of Shanann, it just gets to me. But I do understand that the grief is overwhelming to them as well. And this is likely one way of protecting themselves. I get that. Shanann's parents have responded to the accusations, of course dismissing them as completely false and in no way will ever affect the truth of their daughter, her memory, or her reputation. On November 15th, the mistress came forward, Nicole Kessinger. But I'm not going to spend too much time talking about her, though when we get to the Facebook comments about this case, she does come up a couple of times, and we can address her a little bit then. According to her, though, she was under the impression that the man she was involved with finalized his divorce back in July, and then it was on August 13th that he texted her, telling her that his family was gone, that Shanann had taken the girls on a play date and never came back. Their relationship began to become more intimate during a six-week period over the summer that Shanann was visiting her family in North Carolina. And it was during that time that Nicole Kessinger noticed that the killer had stopped wearing his wedding band. The investigation would reveal text messages between Shanann and her killer that they were having some pretty serious problems during the time that she was visiting her family, as well into the week prior to her death, where she expressed concerns to a friend in text messages that she was beginning to think that her husband didn't love her anymore. What it was that she knew and what that emotional conversation that they had the night that she came home from her business trip may never be known. But what is known is that for some reason, this man considered murder before he considered divorce. On Monday, November 19th, he was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. At his sentencing, the judge of 17 years stated, I could objectively say that this is perhaps the most inhumane and vicious crime I have handled out of the thousands of cases that I've seen. The district attorney at the sentencing described how the defendant killed his wife and children, stating, The man seated to my right smothered his daughters. Imagine the horror in Bella's mind as her father snuffed her life out, as she fought back for her life as her father smothered her. Shanann's family had the opportunity to speak to the killer at the sentencing. Her father said to him, I trusted you to take care of them, not kill them. And they trusted you also. He told the defendant that he carried them out like trash and he saw the video and that videos do not lie. 
you're a heartless monster. You have to live with this vision every day of your life, and I hope you see it every time you close your eyes at night. Shanann's brother said, You went from being my brother, my sister's protector, one of the most loved people in my family, to someone I will spend the rest of my life trying to understand. He said that while he was writing his statement, he was feeling hatred and betrayal, and that it wasn't even worth the time it was taking him to put his pen to the paper to write this. His family looked up to him, and they trusted him. You took away my family from this earth, but you can never take them from my heart. You took away my privilege of being an uncle to the two most precious girls I'd ever known. Shanann's mother spoke last and said, We loved you like a son. We trusted you. Your faithful wife trusted you. Your children adored you. And they also trusted you. They will stay protected by God and his angels. Not only did you take a family of four, your family of four, you took your own life as well. We started a discussion thread on Facebook, and I also posted it on Twitter and Instagram. But as usual, Facebook had the most comment activity, though I did get a few on the others. And this is what you all had to say about the murders of Shanann, Bella, Celeste, and Nico. Lindsay G. said that this is tragic and heartbreaking. What did these beautiful angels ever do to deserve this? She hopes the killer dies a slow, painful death and then burns in hell forever. Cynthia D., like many of us, has no words. Michael B. kind of sparked this bonus episode by questioning if I was going to do an upcoming episode on this. I hadn't planned it. It's out of my state, though I do have the vacation series. There's still so many details in this case unfolding. I don't even think it's possible to discuss every little detail. It's so recent and stuff is still emerging. And I think I mentioned in the comment thread that these kinds of cases, they bother me. And I have to be honest, I didn't read all that much about the case until I researched it for this because it's so infuriating. But there is a lot of interest in it. And Shanann, Bella, Celeste, and Nico do deserve to be remembered. Cindy A. brought up the girlfriend. She has apparently not been faring very well in the court of public opinion, that she is a piece of work herself, googling information about Amber Fry, about how much she made on her tell-all book about the affair with Lacey Peterson's killer, that she's been quoted as saying, if I knew he was expecting a child, I wouldn't have pursued the relationship. Okay, but what about his other two children and his wife? That didn't stop you? Elizabeth C. pointed out that it was her understanding that the girlfriend looked up if people hated Amber Fry and what her net worth was and how much she made on her book deal. Stephanie P. said that Amber Fry and this woman are not the same, not by a long shot. She may like to think that the public won't hate her because the public didn't hate Amber, but Amber was in a different place. Katie B. said, as far as anyone can tell, Amber had no idea about Lacey, so we didn't blame her for what happened. This woman seemed to know everything. 
Stephanie L. is also at a loss for words when it comes to this case. Jennifer M. said, looking at the picture that I posted on social media, how the older daughter looks so much like her dad. How in the world could he do this to them? Jorge G. just listened to a portion of the killer's confession, and he's thinking, what the f*** is wrong with you? Jorge would very much hate any killer that kills kids, including the unborn child. They are like innocent little people who have their whole lives ahead of them. Dave W. had all the strong feelings about this case, and mostly is rooted in disbelief. How does this go wrong? Where does the disconnect happen? We need to understand the how and why so we can prevent this type of tragedy. The human garbage pile gets to clam up because he made a deal to spare his life. That. You should have to tell us everything or you die. Period. He forced his kids through an 8-inch opening in crude oil tanks. I don't understand how that's possible to do. Not physically, but mentally. How? That's more disconnected than seems possible to me. It can't be that he was a monster who was mentally ill. There's a difference. He wasn't sick, needed help, and didn't get it. He was a smart and compassionate man at some point in his life. He fell in love, presumably with his wife and had children. Got bored with that. It happens. It happened to Dave and his ex-wife and wanted something new. He had an affair with a co-worker and allegedly another man, which, by the way, dreamers, I did read about, but I didn't even want to discuss that. And anyway, he decided he'd rather be with somebody else. So far, that makes him a heel, but that's not all that unusual. At some point, Dave guesses, while Shanann was away with the kids, he decided to wipe them all out. That's important to understand. He didn't go into a blind rage and slaughter everyone. That's not what the evidence shows us, even if that's what he tells us. He decided, methodically and with purpose or malice aforethought, as the courts like to say, to murder his children while they slept. He walked into their rooms and smothered them with pillows. I can't even fathom how that's possible. I really can't. Then, coiled up in the living room like a cobra, and waited on Shanann to walk through the door and strangled her. That part, Dave can kind of understand. The action of it, not the commission of it. You can hold bitterness and resentment towards adults that manifest themselves into murderous tendencies. History is full of tales just like that. But the children? And to not be out of your mind, stark raving mad? The only thing that makes a little sense is that maybe he was so resentful of Shanann, and Dave has no idea why, but he had to be in order to murder her, and he saw the children as an extension of her, thereby projecting that resentment onto them, making his actions justifiable to himself. Elizabeth C. agreed with Dave's statement that she struggles with most cases, but family annihilators are especially challenging in their own right. Not to be crass, but she wonders, why not f get divorced? That's easier than this mode ever worked. What makes you feel so powerful that you have the right to snuff out somebody else's life because they're inconvenient to you? All of the actions he could have taken, moving, changing his name, being an immediate one, 
He chose this. It's disgusting. His mother has also made some ridiculous comments about Shanann being abusive, as if that would justify an action on her ass part. Not that she believed Shanann was abusive at all. Also, as for the girlfriend, while she is not the person or persons of concern, how f***ed up is it for her to be caught up in the middle of a show? I'm sure she never wanted. Elizabeth was relieved when they started showing his mugshot instead of him as a suburban dad. He isn't anymore. He's a murderer. Show him like the monster that he is. Rebecca Jane agreed that the killer should not have been given a deal. It's disgusting. Rebecca B. said that she finds family annihilators kind of fascinating, pointing to the example of John List. Because of stress, financial problems, and fidelity, she believes that there's a mental break somewhere that happens where they actually think they could start completely over by killing their entire family. Vicki G. agreed with Dave as well. So many of these cases, it seems, that these were normal, average families. She's not talking about the ones with the psychopathic pedophiles masquerading in a marriage, but these are regular guys. She wonders where the point was that deciding to kill them all and hiding them and facing the public as if they were missing is a better option than fessing up and saying, I don't want to be married anymore. I want a divorce. How? How does it turn to this? How is this easier? All of them assume that they won't be caught because the average Joe knows forensics wins out more often than not and that the husband is the first suspect. So come on, how stupid can you be on top of how vile? Well, Vicky, to that I have to say it's the narcissism that seems to get the best of these guys. They think that highly of themselves that nobody's going to think that they're capable of such a thing. But from what we've been able to observe, it's hard to hold up under that kind of pressure and scrutiny. No amount of narcissism can keep you from shit in pants. Rebecca Jane commented again. And by the way, it was Rebecca who sparked this conversation by posting an article about love letters this killer is now receiving in jail. And I just can't even begin to wrap my head around that. Anyway, she said that so many aspects of this case are difficult to process. How did he appear to be such this perfect husband? She struggles to believe that he was perfectly normal until he killed his family in a rage. Well, I have to say a couple things about that. One is these types of people, and I can't remember if they're psychopaths or sociopaths, one or the other. They are masterful at putting up a superficial front. Many have done it, and my mind first goes to Jody Arias. I don't think that Shanann's killer was truly in his right mind, but what I do think is perhaps things began slowly piling up on him. The marriage, having a wife, a mortgage, one kid, two kids, then three along the way. I think it was building up over time. Maybe he felt trapped and cornered. I think the same thing about Arius. Just the anger, the resentment, all of the buildup until it reached an unbearable, homicidal level. And there's no slowly getting out of it. It has to be immediate and final. And in their minds, there's just no other way. And to your point, I don't think he killed in a fit of rage. I think the rage had been festering for a long, long time. Rebecca also wondered how a person can go from being a family man to doing what he did. 
How much of a sick narcissist does someone have to be in order to think that they can get away with this type of crime? And as for the women who are writing love letters to him, she just can't even. Me neither. I commented and suggested that the women who were writing to him or are writing to him know that he has nothing better to do and desperate for attention. As long as he is in prison, he can't hurt them physically or emotionally. He's, ironically, a safe man to want to get to know. Elizabeth C. said that all of this is based around the lies people tell themselves. She is certain that the women writing to him are enamored with his supposed stereotypical good looks, while at the same time have demonized Shanann and justified his behavior. Stephanie P. said that she read some of the letters and they are sick, sick women who are practically begging him to write to them, and it's disgusting. Katina I. said that the story has infuriated her and she has had a difficult time understanding how this monster could have killed his wife and children. She's followed the case from the beginning, the sentencing, and now the data dump of his confession and searches of his house and text message information. She just looked at Shanann's Facebook and Instagram and she just can't comprehend any of this. And I've been doing the same thing, looking at some of Shanann's photos and videos and it's just heartbreaking. Vicky G commented again and said that divorce is hard. Custody issues are hard. Paying child support is hard. It all sucks. But how did it become better and easier to murder and subsequently serve life in prison? I commented and said that he must have convinced himself in his own mind that this was the only way out. Lindsay G said the only word for this is selfish literally only thinking of himself and his own happiness. Anna V commented and said this story is so heartbreaking. If you want out of a marriage, then get out. But the creepiest part of all this is what's going on now, the women throwing themselves at him. She just doesn't get it. None of us do. Over on Instagram, she so majestic commented and said this is terrible. She doesn't know why people would rather kill than leave or get a divorce. That this is just so stupid. Chloe Kelly agreed. What in the world made him think he could just off his entire family because he was too scared to get a divorce? It's so pathetic and he deserves to rot for what he did. Leslie A. also had no words. Karen W. said that so much information is available now that he's been sentenced that it's fascinating and repulsive, almost in equal parts. Watching him talk about his beautiful daughters last night was appalling, and the little one getting up twice to see if her mom was back from her trip, of what cuddly toys that they preferred. It brings tears to her eyes, and she didn't even know them. But he was able to sit and talk about them, knowing that he'll never be able to cuddle up with them again, without even a catch in his voice. It's the reason he's unable to feel the pain and their loss knowing that he caused it and it didn't even have to be this way, that we can't help but puzzle over this. Dave W. commented again, Another aspect that is fascinating to him is the utter lack of understanding how to even begin to hide his crimes. You could tell he was the guilty party from watching his initial news interviews. Just basic understanding of human behavior would allow you to come to that conclusion swaying from foot to foot in nervousness, crossing his arms to hide, 
using the word like obsessively to buy his brain time to think up a story on the spot. If there had been any doubt beforehand, it was gone with that interview. I bet his buddies loved to play poker with him because he's the one that had the big tell. Not to mention his own video cameras catching him taking the bodies out, requesting to go to the field where he left them that morning, calling the school to unenroll his children, calling a realtor to put the house on the market, calling and texting his girlfriend all within hours of killing everyone. My God, it's like he wanted them to figure it out super fast. He didn't even try to distance himself from his crimes, aside from bothering to hide the bodies, which I'm surprised he did, given he did nothing else to cover up what he had done. I wonder why he bothered. I wondered why he didn't just leave them and say an intruder killed them and he got away. I wonder how fast the cops figured it out. If Dave were a betting man, he'd have his money on just minutes after the initial contact was made. Dave knew in the first few seconds of his news interview, so the cops had to know even quicker. Elizabeth C. also said that she knew immediately that it was him, and Shanann's friend did too, she's certain, and the cops too. She also mentioned that the killer did not want his co-workers to help the cops looking for his family because they think he's a good man. The ego on this bastard. Jennifer S. pointed out that the media keeps talking about the killer and how he's receiving mail from these women who don't really deserve to be spoken about. What about Bella, who fought so hard for her life that she bit into her tongue? Or Shanann, who had to look at him in the eye as he manually strangled her? And you're not wrong. The media is focusing a great deal on some of the salacious aspects of this case. But for me, it only fuels the anger towards the killer. Nothing more. Renee C. said that this defendant is the POS reason why she believes in the death penalty. Libby B. said this case took place in her hometown and she happens to know the so-called girlfriend. Jennifer M. wondered if the girlfriend knew if the killer was married with children and Grace M. pointed out that her Google searches kind of reflected that she knew and her Google searches indicate that she knew almost a year earlier about Shanann and she was under the impression that he was getting a divorce. And lastly, D.E. said that this case is horrific and she can't find the right words to even begin to talk about it. So dreamers, if you commented after Monday on our post on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, my apologies that I wasn't able to include your comments by recording time. But thank you everyone who did comment. And before I go, I wanted to quickly talk about another Colorado case that I mentioned when we were talking about reading body language. Her name was Kenya Monier, and she was 19 years old. She was a stunningly beautiful young woman who was just into her first year in college with aspirations of getting into the field of broadcasting. She was working part-time in customer service and had moved out, had gotten her own place with her boyfriend. On April 1st, 2011, Kenya was in downtown Denver, Colorado with some of her friends. They were drinking, dancing, having a good time, despite the fact that Kenya was underaged, and her parents really didn't have any idea that she had this very active social nightlife. It wasn't until after this night that her parents found out that she and all of her friends were in possession of fake IDs and they were regulars when it came to bar hopping and going to the nightclubs. And it was apparently going on for quite some time. 
Her parents would say that if that's all that were to have happened that night, they would have completely understood. At that age, they were in the same place, doing the same types of things. They get it. So that night, her parents would come to find that Kenya's drinking and behavior had become so out of control that she was escorted out of the nightclub by security. They would later explain to her parents that she was so inebriated that they had no choice but to kick her out. And that was that. She was escorted outside. It was very early in the morning. There was no traffic or activity on the streets of downtown Denver at that hour. She didn't have her jacket. She didn't have her purse. She didn't have her phone. All she had were her clothes on her back, her black mini dress, and red high heels. That was it. She was also kicked out with a guy with whom she was acting inappropriately with on the dance floor. And this person was not her boyfriend. Her stuff was left behind with her friends inside the club. Because of the way her behavior was described to her parents, they began to think that perhaps her drink may have been spiked. It didn't sound like she would behave in this manner that was so belligerent that she would be asked to leave like she was. Her friends told her dad that they were together that night drinking and they all basically had the same number of drinks and it wasn't all that excessive. Now it's possible that her friends were trying to minimize it because they're all underage, they're not supposed to be drinking, but I definitely believe that it's very possible that something was slipped into one of Kenya's drinks. But to our friends, they did not think Kenya would have been acting the way that she had been acting based on what they knew her to have ingested in the way of alcohol. The next day, Kenya's friends had dropped off her belongings with her parents, and they immediately reported Kenya missing. But Tony, her stepdad, really wasn't wanting to wait around. It isn't lost on anyone that this also happened to be April Fool's Day. And even when Maria contacted her husband to tell him that something was wrong, that Kenya hadn't come home, he had to remind his wife that this is not a cool April Fool's joke. But she wasn't joking. In an attempt to track her down, her stepdad began looking through her phone to see her last calls and texts. He was particularly interested in tracking down the guy that she had been thrown out of the club with the same time as Kenya was. And through all the messages that he found, he found one that said, quote, Hey, this is Travis, the guy who gave you a ride last night. White creepy van, smiley face, did you get home okay? So at this point, Kenya's family is hoping that she is just someplace sleeping off a hard night of drinking and that once she comes around, she's going to get in touch and they can move on from this. But that text message from this person named Travis was really bothering her stepdad. His first thought was that it was a guy who had been tossed from the club with Kenya. So Tony called the number and he left a voicemail message and hoped that this Travis person would call back. In the meantime, the police investigation led to the discovery of some surveillance footage taken in the lobby of an apartment building nearby. It was a building where the man who got thrown out of the club resided. The footage showed Kenya and this man walking into the lobby not too long after they had been kicked out of the club. So, police were able to track this guy down, and they brought him in for questioning. He explained that Kenya did walk with him to his apartment building, and he asked her to come up to his apartment, to which she agreed. The footage showed her entering into the elevator with him, but once she got up there, she did change her mind, 
explaining that she needed to get back to her friends and she decided to leave. And his story was corroborated based on the surveillance. He was telling the truth. He was a young man who, at least in this story, did the right thing. In less than five minutes time, Kenya reappeared on the lobby surveillance footage by herself. She can be seen having a short conversation with the homeless man who was loitering nearby. And then she left the apartment building lobby. She next appeared on surveillance footage of a neighboring hotel where she stopped in to use the restroom. According to police in the video footage, it did appear that she was intoxicated based on her movements and the way she was walking, attempting to keep up her balance. She is last seen outside the front doors of that apartment building again, and then she was seen for the last time walking completely out of view of those lobby surveillance cameras. So Travis, the guy who sent the text message about the creepy white van, he finally called Tony back. It had been about two days since the last time anyone had seen Kenya. Travis explained to Tony that he saw Kenya stumbling around outside the apartment building and he stopped to ask if she needed any help, that she accepted, and he gave her a ride back to the club so she could get her things, but by the time they got there, it was closed. So then he offered her a ride back to her home and she was still pretty incoherent and couldn't find her friends, her phone, her purse, or her car. So along the way, he explained, Kenya wanted to stop for a cigarette. So he pulled into a Conoco gas station, but the place was closed. At this point, Travis would claim that Kenya saw a man standing nearby smoking. So she got out of the van and tried to bum a cigarette off of him. This man, he said, was also drinking, gave Kenya a smoke, and the two began talking. And Kenya decided to go on with her evening with this other man, so Travis drove off. And that's the last he saw of her, so he says. When Tony asked him how he got Kenya's phone number, he explained that he let her use his phone to call her phone to try and get a hold of her friends, and that's how he ended up with her number. Travis then said that he would agree to meet with Tony at that Conoco gas station where he claimed to have dropped Kenya off. They arranged a time and both headed over there. Tony, not really knowing what he was getting himself into, decided to grab his pistol and bring it with him before he left. When Tony arrived, there were two police squad cars at the gas station, which was kind of a surprise to him. He later found out that his wife, Kenya's mom, was so afraid of what her husband was doing, confronting the stranger, thinking that it might be some sort of setup, called the police as soon as he walked out the door, and they showed up where Travis and Tony were going to meet. Police, of course, did not want Tony to confront this man on his own, so they requested that Travis come down to the station and answer some questions, which he did. So, who is this Travis person? His name was Travis Forbes. He was 31 years old, and he does indeed drive a creepy white van, but it seems he has a legit reason to do so. He apparently ran his own business, making and selling gluten-free granola bars. When he was questioned by police, he told them the same story that he told Kenya's stepdad, that he picked her up, stopped at the gas station, she bummed a cigarette off a guy standing there, and the two of them went along their way. 
He then provided a pretty good alibi that he went to the home of his girlfriend and stayed the night there. She was brought in for questioning as well, and she corroborated his story. He even went so far as to tell detectives that he wished he had given Kenya a ride all the way home, that if she had made the choice to go with him, he would have taken her home, that if he felt that she was in any sort of danger or weirdness about the guy, that he would have done something. He then told investigators the man at the gas station was a young Asian guy named Dan. And nobody, not the police, not Kenya's parents, no one was believing this story. And a huge search for Kenya was immediately launched. The lead detective on the case, Nash Garule, had every available resource out there looking for her, looking for a surveillance video, chasing down leads, interrogating witnesses. And when investigators began taking a closer look at Forbes, they found some troubling things in his background. Definitely, some red flags were going up. A deeper look into his background revealed some troubling incidents. At the time that he was being questioned by police about his encounter with Kenya, Forbes was actually on probation stemming from a domestic violence conviction and they did find several other encounters with law enforcement in his past. In the meantime, Forbes seemed willing to want to talk to the media about the missing 19-year-old. And this is the interview that, similar to the first killer that we talked about in this episode, this interview had several tells. Body language. I actually read a very interesting article about this case and Travis Forbes. It was written by Dr. Rhonda Freeman as she was looking at Forbes' case as an example of a murderer with strong psychopathic traits. She first pointed out that most people with psychopathy don't commit crimes, and those that do, only a few of them will commit what are considered to be violent crimes. But there is a subset of people with psychopathy that are indeed violent, and when they commit crimes, their actions are usually extremely callous and cold, with levels of cruelty that are typically unimaginable to the majority of people. And sometimes these criminals are thought to be crazy or psychotic, but their crimes are usually for a specific reason. And these things are usually pretty well planned out, calculated, and done with purpose and intent. They are not the types that senselessly commit crimes in a blinding, discombobulated rage. They made plans. They were very meticulous. And sometimes they spent time stalking their victims. The goal is to get away with it, and this fits into their planning, cleaning up, creating an alibi, just having their story at the ready. Sometimes these killers do get away with it. They can sometimes be so good at what they do, they can convince juries of reasonable doubt, enough to be found not guilty. An example that Dr. Freeman gives is this. A violent psychopath would easily commit violent crimes for the purpose of punishing and demonstrating power over their non-psychotic partner. There have been individuals with psychopathy that have killed their own children as a means of punishing their spouse. Her offense was filing for divorce and requesting sole custody. In his mind, the lesson was necessary. He punished her for slighting him. He regained his power position and he hurt her in the process. You may wonder, 
Where is his guilt for killing his own children? There will be none. It was the lesson taught to his wife that was important. The children were tools to convey his message to teach a lesson. This is the coldness associated with the psychopathic crime. People who exhibit strong psychopathic tendencies are incapable of developing deep connections or bonds, so people aren't really seen as people. They are more like objects. Even after a psychopath kills someone, that person is intolerant of accepting blame. They will say or do anything to not have to be held responsible. They lie, they make up stories, and they will go so far as to blame the victim, the very person that they killed. They also don't care who else they hurt in the process, and they will take no issue with damaging other people or blame other people to deflect everything away from themselves and make everyone else out to be the bad person. And this is all part of their manipulativeness, and it gets them thinking they are smarter than everyone else around them, including police, including their own attorneys. And what's more, engaging in this level of deceitfulness and thinking that they're actually getting away with it brings the psychopath a great deal of pleasure and satisfaction. It is also very important to most psychopaths that the world see them in a positive way, even after it is common knowledge that they've committed an atrocious act or caused a great deal of harm to a victim. It becomes all about them, and their image is of the utmost importance, never really giving any thought or consideration to the person that they victimized, harmed, or killed. And this is where Dr. Freeman brings up Travis Forbes describing him as a charming, manipulative person whose behavior suggested very possible strong psychopathic traits. I've explained to you what he is suspected of doing, being involved in Kenya's disappearance. We looked to the interview he gave to the media who were covering the story of the missing 19-year-old, and he was asked by the reporter, Did you murder her? Forbes said no, but he nodded his head in the up-and-down, yes, motion. It's not even subtle if you've seen this interview. He is saying the words no, but he is nodding his head yes. And he continues on in the interview, doing some of the things that we discussed earlier in this article. He states, all of a sudden, I was no longer important. I mean, I was just one stranger, and then off with another stranger, Everybody has their own choices, you know, and she chose to take off with this guy. I can't, I can't blame myself for that. If you already knew this story, or you may have already guessed, that Kenya is not alive. She was, in fact, kidnapped and murdered by Travis Forbes. But in this interview, he is clearly all about himself when he says the words, I was no longer important. He made up lies and other characters in his narrative in order to place blame and responsibility elsewhere. He also placed the blame for what happened to her on her by saying she had her own choices. Um, yeah, no. You took away her choices, Travis Forbes. And again, if anyone saw this interview, he faked some emotions as well, pretending to wipe at his eyes, but there's clearly nothing there. So yeah, this was the interview that I was reminded of when we talked about body language and nonverbal tells that indicate something is off. 
And it was just a coincidence that both of these stories took place in Colorado. Anyway, back to Forbes. He had emerged as the prime suspect when it came to Kenya's disappearance. And by now, based on what I've described thus far, he is responsible for it. But proving it is not going to be that simple. Just as the investigation was bringing about a great deal of circumstantial evidence all pointed at Forbes, he himself mysteriously disappeared. So, in an attempt to locate him, they began with the place that he worked at, a downtown Denver bakery, and this was the place where he made his gluten-free granola bars, and it was here that investigators discovered something very ominous. And if you saw this episode of Dateline, and I think 2020 covered this story as well several years ago, then you may have seen this video footage. The bakery where he worked at was equipped with surveillance cameras. And the night after Kenya disappeared, the security cameras in the business captured Forbes entering into the office that belonged to the owner of the bakery, and he proceeded to unplug the surveillance system. But it seems that that did not shut off the entire system because he was captured on another camera in the kitchen area, wheeling in a large white cooler, and he wheeled it into the freezer. And you could see in the video that the lid of the cooler is taped shut with black tape. When investigators examined the cooler, when they opened it, they were hit with the strong stench of bleach coming from the inside. The entire thing had been doused and scrubbed. The only thing they did find was one single human cell on the lid inside one of the drink holders embedded in the lid. He told investigators that he had been out earlier that day delivering granola bars and that that was him bringing his cooler back when he was done. They wondered why, if he made his deliveries, that he needed the cart to wheel the cooler around, as the thing would have been empty, right? And when they took a look at his van, it too reeked of bleach. The entire inside of the van had been scrubbed spotless, and the carpeting inside of the floor of the van was also replaced with brand new carpeting. Other surveillance cameras inside the bakery showed images of Forbes with some rags and a bottle of bleach in his hands as well. But as much as Forbes and his story stunk, police had one big problem. They did not know where Kenya was. So for the time being, there wasn't anything that they could do about it. At least not for right now. And as they were making all of these incriminating discoveries, they came to find that suddenly Forbes was vanished as well but not for very long. Detective Garule received word that Forbes was taken into custody in Austin, Texas, 922 miles away or 1,484 kilometers. He had borrowed a car from a friend and never came back. So that friend reported the car stolen, which is why Forbes was pulled over and arrested. Because of this arrest, it gave Detective Garule probable cause to get a warrant for Forbes's DNA. So he flew down to Austin and paid him a visit in the county jail, which shocked Forbes to see him down there in Austin. Gurule spoke to him for a bit and then obtained a DNA swab from inside of his mouth. Forbes was extradited back to Denver, but the friend who had reported the car stolen decided not to press charges. So authorities could not keep Forbes into custody for very long. 
So for the first 48 hours after his release, investigators kept surveillance on Forbes, hoping that he would lead them to Kenya's whereabouts. But that didn't happen either. And they were simply unable to justify the cost of the resources to keep him under surveillance for any longer than that. And just as their surveillance was called off, another tragedy would take place about one hour north of Denver in Fort Collins, Colorado. A young woman named Lydia Tillman was viciously attacked in her own apartment three months after Kenya vanished on July 4, 2011. Her assailant gained entry into her home by breaking in. She was raped and then she was strangled. And then her body was doused in bleach. And then her apartment was set ablaze and her assailant left, leaving Lydia to burn to death. But somehow, savagely beaten nearly to death, Lydia managed to escape the flames, jumping out of her second-story bedroom window, landing on the ground below. When paramedics arrived, she was unable to speak, as her face had been smashed in, her jaw obliterated. And just after she indicated to the paramedics that she didn't know her attacker, she suffered a stroke. She was rushed to the hospital and immediately placed into a medically induced coma as doctors feverishly worked to save her life. As she lay there, investigators swabbed her fingernails. Lydia had fought her attacker, and she had his DNA under her nails. They rushed this DNA to the lab, but Detective Grulier, he knew. The moment he heard about the bleach, he knew that this was a Forbes thing. That guy liked bleach. A lot. In the meantime, detectives knew Forbes was trolling around Fort Collins. They had him back on 24-hour surveillance. They had this inkling this time that him being in Fort Collins and this attack on Lydia was no coincidence. Fort Collins also has a bar and nightclub district that is very popular with college students, and investigators did, in fact, observe Forbes loitering in these areas. All of this was going on while they were awaiting those DNA results from Lydia's attack. They could tell. They could just see that Forbes was watching observing. You may even want to call it stalking young women enjoying a night out. Finally, police were able to observe that Forbes began following one young woman and eventually saw him walking this woman back to her place, which was near Colorado State University. So police moved in in order to prevent this from progressing any further. When they asked Forbes for his name, he gave them a fake name and this was cause for them to place him into custody again for providing police with false information. But this, too, would not be for very long. And just as the detectives were ordered to release him, the lab contacted Detective Gurrelay with the results. The DNA found under Lydia's nails was a match to Forbes's DNA. All plans to release Forbes from custody were rolled back, they were now going to be able to bring about some charges that were going to keep him in jail for a really long time and keep him right where Detective Gourlay wanted him. 
Forbes was charged with attempted murder, sexual assault, and arson. Detective Gourlay refocused his investigation back on Forbes. Now that he had him in custody, this gave him probable cause to look deeper into his involvement with Kenya's disappearance. Beginning with the phone records and ping locations, they were able to determine that Forbes' girlfriend, the one who had provided him with the alibi that he was with her the night that Kenya vanished, that was a lie. His phone did not ping anywhere near his girlfriend's house, not even close. What's more, he was never at her house at all that night. And as they would go on to confront her with the lies, she would eventually be arrested and charged with that. With the evidence and pressure mounting, knowing that Kenya's case was looking at the potential of being charged with the death penalty, Gurule never let up on his suspect. He was finally able to garner a confession from Forbes, but Forbes wanted a stipulation in place that if he were to confess, he did not want to go to jail as a rapist. And with that, he finally admitted he killed Kenya, but he claimed that he didn't mean to and that he didn't plan on it either, stating, I didn't pull over to kill her. I didn't pull over to rape her. None of that was premeditated. None of that was in my head. And as his story went, he said Kenya had fallen asleep in his van, and while she was asleep, he had sex with her. When she awoke, she was upset that he had had sex with her, so she in turn slapped him, which caused him to become upset, and he strangled her to death. He admitted to putting her in the cooler and that he had difficulty closing the lid because rigor had set in in her arms and they were stiff. So he had to force it closed and keep it sealed with the tape. And for the next several hours, at a time which he said he was making deliveries, which he may have finished doing all the while, Kenya was in that cooler in the back of the van. And when he was done, that's when he was captured on the surveillance video in the bakery carting that cooler into the freezer. In his confession, he said later on after she had been in the freezer for some time, he removed Kenya from the cooler. He removed all of her clothing and doused her body in bleach. And he did the same thing to himself, removed all of his clothing and washed himself down with bleach. He removed all of the contents from his work van and washed the entire inside of his van with bleach. He placed everything all the clothing, all the contents of his van into a barrel and burned it. He eventually led detectives to the place where he had unceremoniously buried Kenya, at a remote area on the outskirts of Denver. He pointed to a grove of trees just past a ravine and told detectives that she was over there by those trees. Gurule walked over there and looked around, and Forbes said to him, you're standing on top of her. She's about five feet under. Tony received the news first that Kenya had been found, and he had turned around to tell the devastating news to his wife and children. As time went on, the toll of this tragedy would wear on the family, ultimately leading Tony and Maria to go their separate ways. In September of 2011, Forbes was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of Kenya, as well as 48 years for his attack on Lydia. And Lydia, still unable to speak, showed up in court to face her attacker with a statement that she had written. 
three sentences that took her more than an hour to put together, and her father read it to the court. Travis Forbes, you caused me no harm. My spirit and my soul and my mind remain untouched. May you find your peace in this life. Lydia suffered a tremendous amount of brain damage as well as physical damage to her throat as a result of Forbes' attack, which made it difficult for her to speak. But she has said in written statements to the media that it was going to be her intention to somehow find the strength to forgive Travis Forbes. And she did. She first had a great deal of anger towards him, but then she felt sadness that he must be in a great deal of pain in order to be able to brutally hurt another human being. At the hearing, Kenya's parents embraced Lydia. If it weren't for her fight against Forbes, scratching him, they are unsure they would have ever known what became of their daughter. They gifted Lydia with a ring that belonged to Kenya, one of her favorites. In circling back to Dr. Freeman's article about Forbes' psychopathy, she pointed out something that he said about where he buried Kenya. I wanted to bury her either next to some water or next to some trees. Gurule asked why, and he said because that is where I would like to be buried if someone had killed me. I would hope they would bury me next to something nice and not just dump me in some fucking dumpster. And this statement is looked upon as Forbes' way of minimizing what he had done. The crimes he had committed, despite having done this heinous act, he still continues to want to maintain this nice guy image. And I feel the same way about him not wanting it to be known that he's a rapist when he was sent to prison. The fact that he felt like it should have been appreciated that he chose a nice place to bury Kenya as opposed to tossing her into a dumpster shows how disconnected and narcissistic this man was and is. Like what he was doing was some sort of act of human decency. Never mind the fact that he brutally raped and murdered Kenya. In his own words, he said, quote, it was a mistake. For the people that knew me, I have to say, remember me, please. Remember me as I was, not the monster I became. I'm sorry. Describing this as a mistake is an attempt on Forbes' part to put some space between himself and his depraved actions. It is a way of attempting to keep intact the image that he is a good and decent human being because this was just a mistake. Nobody is perfect, right? Everyone makes mistakes. Again, never considering the fact that he's murdered someone. And what's even worse, when people like this get away with their crimes, it actually becomes somewhat enjoyable. They delight and relish in the fact that they're able to do this and not get caught. It feeds into their superiority complex. Referring to murdering someone as a mistake is relatively common. No matter the background, the intellect, or other factors of the perpetrator, these things are the same across the board. They will not be held accountable for their behaviors. They do everything that they can to deflect responsibility onto other people, and they try to minimize. Therefore, their actions must have been a mistake or an accident. If evidence points to this person's overwhelming guilt, then you start hearing things come from them like it's an attempt to distance themselves from the criminal act. This was a mistake. This was an accident. This was self-defense. Someone else is complicit in this. This is not my usual character. 
I'm the victim here, someone else caused this, or I don't know, or I don't remember. Both of the killers we discussed today very much behaved in this manner after the fact, as do many, many killers that we've discussed over the course of our show, and I'm sure we will hear these same things many times to come in the future. I would like to thank you for joining me for this surprise bonus episode of California Dreaming. I am recording this on my birthday, and I want to thank all of you listening who took the time to post in the group or on my Facebook page or message me privately to send birthday wishes. I had a beautiful day with my family, and I had a very relaxing break from the show, but I did miss all of you very much, and I wanted to bring this to you since we've been talking about this case on social media over the last week or so. It was very hard to not break down while discussing Shanann, Bella, Celeste, and Nico, and our hearts go out to their family and loved ones who are having to struggle through this time of year without them. And the same for the family of Kenya Monier. And I can't even begin to express how grateful I'm sure all of us feel that Lydia not only survived her vicious attack, but had the fight in her that ultimately landed her attacker exactly where he deserves to be. Both of these killers are where they deserve to be. And with that, I will sign off, dreamers. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>